0: Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. In a little while, we're going to talk about Frances McDormand, her big win at the Oscars, and the inclusion rider. We'll tell you what the inclusion rider is, uh, what it means to Hollywood moving forward, and whether or not my panel thinks it's a good idea. We'll do that with everyone sitting around me right now here. Julie Eng good. is a magician, but you call yourself...
1: Magician.
0: I love that so much, and I really am dying to talk about the science of magic, yes, which is a, a CBC special coming up soon. But it's also uh, something that's near and dear to your heart because your father was a magician, That's right. your grandfather was a magician. Well,
1: it really for me started with my dad, yeah. and he had a long history in the you know in magic. So I literally born into it, pulled out of the hat, you know. I,
0: <laughs> I love that, and we'll and we'll talk more about that right. later. Fascinated to find out about that. Uh, Catherine Kuczynski is here. She is the opera queen, and you are presenting uh, Cineplex's live at the Met on March 15th. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a little while and Sounds where your good. love of opera came from. And then Adam Garnet Jones is here. Uh, great, great, great. Is the film, Uh, you you remember we did a show, an entire show, you were working, you were busy off doing something a little while ago. We had everybody else from great, great, great in here a little while ago and uh, they were fantastic. It's a great movie and it's nominated for a Canadian Screen Award uh, for Best Original Screenplay and you're nominated along with uh, Sarah Kolaski. That's right. Yeah, so uh, nice to have you all here.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so Frances McDormand uh, is known for giving great acceptance speeches, and Mm -hmm. she's been giving a lot of them lately. Uh, I loved at the Screen Actors Guild Awards where she said, you know... I come out of my hole every now and again. Every four or five years I make a movie. You give me one of these things, and I really appreciate it. But let's think about moving it forward to the, a newer generation. Right. And I, I think she was really referring to Saoirse Ronan, uh, who is 22 or 23, and a genius. And uh, I I think in some ways that uh, – Frances McDormand was suggesting that I don't really want the Academy Award, give it to somebody else, but she won it anyway. And then she made it another amazing speech uh, at the Academy Awards for winning Best Actress for Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. But she talked about something called an inclusion rider. Now, it's not a new idea. Uh, It's been banded around for a long time, the idea being that if you have a film, a big movie might have 50 roles in it. Only seven or eight of those are going to be really significant. So you're going to have 42, let's say other roles that need to be filled. The inclusion writer suggests that someone like Tom Cruise or Nicole Kidman or uh, whoever the big star of the film is could say, you know what? I want those roles, those 42 roles to be cast uh, that reflect the diversity of the place that we're shooting in, uh, that uh, are equal parts men and women. I want uh, inclusion, in here, in this writer. And some people have have stepped up and said, we're going to do that. Michael B. Jordan's new company, uh, he's one of the stars of Black Panther, has already said, well, we're going to do that. We're going to have an inclusion writer. Um, Adam, I'll start with you because you are uh, the filmmaker uh, in the bunch here. Have you heard of this? And uh, if not, what's your reaction?
3: Well, I haven't heard of a general inclusion writer before, but that's a practice that um, a lot of um, certainly indigenous filmmakers from the mm-hmm. communities that I come from, um, black filmmakers, Asian filmmakers have been doing on their own films and their own productions for a really long time. Um, I think what's different about this is it's bringing that general practice out into the broader Filmmaking community and saying that you know that um, the 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 burden, uh, if you want to call it that, of trying to include diverse representation on film sets shouldn't just fall to people who are coming from diverse communities. It's mm-hmm. a conversation that has to be had across the board, and it's something that everybody has to take part in because um, the the efforts that are being undertaken by indigenous filmmakers, black filmmakers, Asian filmmakers uh, aren't really penetrating into the mainstream yet. Or at least maybe they're just starting to. Well, they're just starting to.
0: I mean, I think that th- what we're going to see over the next little while is a, a, a huge change because Hollywood has finally figured out and been dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century right. that that uh, you don't have to have Tom Cruise starring in your blockbuster in order for people to go see it. So, Catherine, what do you make of The Inclusion Rider?
2: I think it's high time. I think it's overdue. I think it's... Good, and it... it... Uh, it's important for these people to use their powers for good. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed they haven't done it sooner. But then again, Hollywood only tends to respond to dollar signs. And the success of Black Panther has proven that, oh, maybe this is a good idea.
0: Yeah, Black Panther and Girls Trip and 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 a handful of other movies that have, have come through, Get Out's another example, uh, have come through and made a fortune at the box office and shown that, you know, if you reflect the audience that's actually going to the movies, mm-hmm. that you will actually get an audience at the movies at a time when Hollywood's really struggling. truly?
1: Uh, well, I, I think I agree. I mean, it's,
0: it's... It's hard to disagree with the idea. Exactly. I, I mean, it's
1: impossible <laughs> to disagree, quite frankly. And, we, you know, I come from a male-dominated field as well. Yeah. And, and it is something that uh, people often ask me about. And I'm really fortunate because I think I grew up inside with, you know, a family environment, so I had that almost protection of right. always being included. And I never felt the... the the you know female magician role and and in this case you know i would i would hate for women to be brought in as a as a token role you know right. you want to make sure that there's an empowerment to to the to the whole position and being there so it's it's interesting that it is sort of it has to be so underscored and pointed out it seems so obvious to me but mm-hmm. you know i am very i'm in a very privileged position to have been included all my life in that
0: yeah and and that is the case for you right i mean was it because of the, the this larger family connection that you had, or or I, what? Because there yeah. aren't that many female magicians.
1: Well, there. are there or aren't there? I mean, yeah. I think there are. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of women in this. By, and that there's but by ratio, student.
0: maybe by ratio. By ratio, yeah, yeah. By ratio, there there there's a smaller number. Yeah, than yeah.
1: it is a male dominated field, absolutely, and I'd I'd be foolish to say otherwise. At the same time, I think that women have a really difficult choice to make if they want to get into this because. You know, are you battling against the idea of, you know, are you are you there physically? Are you just there for right. eye candy? Or are you there with your skills? And how do you battle both? Um, like Hollywood, I think I'm in a performing arts, you know, kind of play where you're just going to everyone looks at you and your looks count what what are you wearing mm-hmm. how do you how do you sound how old are you you know they're constantly assessing i feel that i feel that now that i'm a little older that definitely comes into play and i'm really fortunate that people still you know hire me
0: <laughs> well you're really good and we're going to find out how good a little bit later and you can see julie's work on the science of magic and yeah. there's some cool stuff that kind of snapped my head back a little bit so i'm going to talk about that um, let's talk about cds uh, Catherine, you do you? You are a music person. Do you still buy CDs? Yes. Yes, and and uh, I do too. Do you? Yeah. Viva Adam, CDs. do you buy CDs or are you a streaming I don't. kind of person? I don't. No. absolutely not. Well, are showing your
2: age. The, well, I don't we, care. Well, I,
0: I haven't bought a CD in a very long time. I was trying to remember the last one that I bought, but um, I download legally yeah. uh, music. But uh, CDs, I have probably. Thousands of them, yep. but I haven't bought them for a long time, and now uh, the CDs are going sort of the way of the dodo. They're 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 being eliminated, or at least it's going to be a little harder to find them. Which uh, is so sad. Yeah. So what? Why is it sad, Catherine?
2: Because it's history we're yeah. putting in the bin, and I feel like we do that a little too freely, and quickly in North America. It's right. funny because, you know, I was recently in Berlin and I, one among the many things I did was go to the Berlin Philharmonic and I heard them perform Strauss's Alpine Symphony. That symphony was the very first thing put onto a CD in 1989 right. by Herbert von Karajan, who was a huge proponent of CDs um, and of digital recorded technology. Yeah. It's just another... You know, it's like the CBC sale of all of their stuff. It's incredibly sad mm-hmm. to me that we just so quickly bin things that aren't new. It's <laughs> it's like people. It's like people get old, we bin them. You know, clothes <laughs> get old, we bin them. And then they only come back, you know, if they're hipster or if they're trendy or, you know, I mean, look at the success of vinyl now. People are arguing, is vinyl getting too expensive?
0: Right. Well, I mean, I think the people that are saying that it's getting too expensive are people maybe of my age who bought – records when they were $3, and now when new vinyl comes out, it's $34. Because it's
2: hip. Because they've figured (laughs) out a way to, like, ding people. Maybe I'm just old and... Crotchety. Well, see, well but... I
0: would, I would say, in terms of CDs, 1989 uh, it doesn't seem that long ago to me, and I don't feel that the CD <laughs> has a long, rich history that that I really feel I need to honor. I bought them. I have
2: a load of it them. It does in classical
0: music. It does. See, it's. I think it's different in classical music, but. Um, uh, I would suggest that for me it will make absolutely no difference to my life whatsoever. And it's not that I, I haven't been mine. They're still sitting there and I uh, but I find I use them less and less and less. And Did less
1: you have and you digitize
0: them, them all? i'm I'm thinking about it, but my God, that's a lot of work to digitize everything. <laughs> yes. So
3: Adam, you don't you haven't bought a CD in ages, you say right. And why? I mean, I think that I I, I love music. I've always loved yep. music, um, but the the digital, you know, the download form is easier for me. It's easier yeah. to to go onto iTunes and find what I'm looking for. But what I think is sad is l- any loss of discoverability mm-hmm. for uh, previously recorded music. And it's the same for for film. You know, there's many times where I've wanted to find a film and thought, oh, that would be really great. I can't go to a video store. Yep. It must be on iTunes. And I look on iTunes, and lo and behold, it's not there. And the only available copy is $600 on Amazon. (laughs) Yep. And I'm sure you're getting the same thing with CDs and even with vinyl, where you don't have the discoverability of that previously recorded content. So – newer generations, even if they want to find that stuff, even if they're looking for it, they can't actually access
0: exactly. it. Exactly. I, I collected records for years, and one of the things that I loved about collecting records was that they were hard to find. I remember looking for James Brown's Christmas record for seven years, and I, you, you <laughs> could, I wanted an original copy of it. I was writing people in Australia. We were doing this thing. This was many, many years ago, and eventually I found it, and it was this kind of aha moment. How great is this? Now I can just download it, and a lot Lot of that and the discoverability of a lot of things has just been taken away
2: and the access because i was actually speaking to a tenor when i was in berlin and he was performing a very rarely done work there in concert Uh, With the Deutsche Opera And
0: And let's pick that story up on the other side here. We're going to leave people hanging for all the details. (laughs) When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Catherine Custanzi, uh, Julie Eng, and Adam Garnett-Jones. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. We continue the conversation about CDs. And CDs my guest Catherine Custanzi says have a, has a, a, a much greater place in classical music than they do perhaps uh, in a more disposable kind of pop culture we'll finish that story that you started on the other side of the break in just a second also welcome my guest Adam Garnett Jones uh, great 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 his film uh, is nominated for a 2018 Canadian Screen Award for Best Original Screenplay and you will share that should you win and my fingers are crossed with uh, Sarah Kolaski and uh, there's lots of other stuff to talk about, and we'll get to that in just a little while. And then Julie Yang is you. here. Uh, Julie Yang has uh, a show called The Science of Magic, uh, coming very soon to CBC. Mm-hmm. We'll get all the details in a sec. And uh, you are a second-generation magician, and that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so we'll get to that uh, in a second. Catherine, uh, finish your story. So we were talking about a tenor that you met in Berlin, looking for a piece of music. Couldn't find it on iTunes, but...
2: But he he found literally one copy, and a lot of singers will look for past recordings of things to homework a role, right? Especially if it's a very rarely done work. It's not widely known. It's kind of obscure. So they look on iTunes to homework it. And he could find maybe one recording on iTunes versus, like, you know, 20 or 30 for normal operas. And yet I looked it up uh, for CD and there are like quite a few CD recordings of this. So it is useful. It is important. And it's not just, I think, for people in the classical world because if writers need to homework something, if broadcasters need to homework something, CDs are awfully important for that because they um, often are there in the place of things that don't exist on iTunes that haven't been digitized.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree to a certain extent. I mean, I... I Use as a writer in the in the books that I've written, uh, use a, a variety of methods for um, uh, discovering things. But I wrote a book. Uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, uh, about a movie called The Devils, Ken Russell's movie The Devils from 1971. And uh, it literally just doesn't exist in the world. There's prints of it that are so badly hacked and, and and sort of decomposing after sitting in warehouses for years that it was very difficult to kind of find the thing uh, that I wanted, the, the, the full copy that I wanted. Uh, but eventually I did. If you look around the where deep, did you find it? Well, you have to go to places when you're looking for a movie called The Devils, which <laughs> uh, features scenes of naked nuns. It's a true story about a devil possession in 1634 uh, in uh, in France. Uh, you go to some pretty dark places. Is on it a internet. French movie? No, no, no it's a, <laughs> it is a it is based on The Devils of Loudon by Aldous Huxley. It was also an opera. It has been uh, uh, translated into a number of different media. Ken Russell made what I think is the definitive version of this story in 1971, and it's fantastic. stars Oliver Reed, uh, Vanessa Redgrave. You have to see it now. Yeah, it's fantastic. And and, and, Hmm. strangely enough, since I've written the book, it's easier to find out. It's easier to get. Uh, But it is a truly tremendous movie, but at the time... Maybe you need to
1: write a book
0: on CDs then. Yeah, you know what? I don't have that kind of time. (laughs) Um, So, Catherine, you are going to be hosting uh, on March 15th at 6.15 at at, uh, the Young and Dundas Cineplex in Toronto so if you're listening in anywhere else in the country fly in. <laughs> Why not? Yeah,
2: why not? We might tape portions of it. Uh, I'm being asked by friends in Europe to do this, so we'll see. Maybe. um, So tell us what's going on. It is—some people might be aware of something called the Live in HD series through the Metropolitan Opera. It broadcasts to cinemas around the world live transmissions. This is a rebroadcast of a work that was already broadcast live a couple weeks ago. Uh, but it's being rebroadcast now for us special people in the VIP mm-hmm. cinema, the Yangdanda Square. Um, and it is L'Elicer La Damure or The Elixir of Love, uh, by Donizetti. One of the most famous, most frequently performed operas and a very, very, very good introduction to the media. If you are not used to this, if you are scared of opera, if you are (laughs) thinking it's for snobs, if you think I can't possibly follow this, you are wrong. I will prove you wrong with this opera. Donizetti will prove you wrong. Mm. It is the most earwormy music in the world. It is so light, melodic, and it is full of, as a friend of mine noted, warm humanity music.
0: And you saw Pavarotti perform it in New York? I did. Years ago?
2: I saw Luciano Pavarotti perform the male role in this Namorino at the Met in New York when I was a teenager. Now Pavarotti said this was his favorite role. He said this was the role he felt closest to of all the roles he'd ever done. So it's I mean the role is a simple man. He's a country <laughs> man, it's it's you know he's lovelorn. He just loves. He just mm-hmm. loves Nemorino. He just loves and he, he loves, you know, the the mean girl who isn't really mean underneath it all. She's just very, very proud.
0: And you can win or you can buy tickets at cineplex.com forward slash events forward slash Met Opera or you can win tickets by visiting exclaim.ca. Uh, you are called the Opera Queen. When did you first I, develop a love for you, opera? You
2: know, I have to explain something. The name of this website uh, came about it was actually a few years ago in New York. I was having drinks with an editor friend, and he, he said something But oh, you're such a drama queen. I said, I am not. And he said, okay, fine. You're an opera queen. And between that and people constantly misspelling my first and last name, um, you know, there's different versions of Catherine, and my name has a Z in it, and everybody gets confused. Um I thought about it, and I thought The Opera Queen, especially since I travel to Europe a lot. People don't speak English, but they remember theoperaqueen.com. So between that, needing a place to collate all of my work, I thought, okay, that's that's what I'm going to do. So I saw my first opera when I was almost four. Um, here at the O'Keefe, when when it was called the O'Keefe, that's how old I am, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've just been—it's sort of been a part of my life ever since. I used to go down to the Met as a teenager, as I say, with my mom, took me, and we got to see all the greats, and it's just sort of been always a part of my life and a part of my. My being, and I never thought I would be writing or reporting about it, or speaking about it on the radio, hosting an event. You know, I never thought that any of this would happen, but uh, it has, and I'm happy, and I hope to continue doing that. And
0: we're almost out of time, but tell me very quickly why. This is the most accessible opera.
2: You can sing along. It's it's <laughs> it's it has tunes. I it has tunes. It does. There's there's a there's a there's one very famous aria in this that I'm sure everyone, even if they say I don't know opera, has heard. In "Un furtiva lagrima," it is the famous male aria Fruit of Tear," and it's beautiful. You can hum along to it. There's also uh, an I'm aria for us right now. Yeah, I don't sing. I don't want to offend Richard's listeners, so it's 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 better not to. Also, it's for a dude that has a much lower voice than me. But also, it has an aria in the second half uh, between a bass baritone, and, so very low voice, and the soprano. That is one of the most charming, sparkling, beautiful, melodic pieces ever written in opera.
0: And we'll leave it there. Thank you uh, so much. So go see it. Please come. Yes. Maybe
2: I'll wear a crown.
0: Maybe you'll wear a crown. <laughs> March 15th, 615 at the Cineplex at Young and Dundas. When we come back, we're going to talk to Julie Yang about what it's like growing up in a family of magicians. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Kraus. Joining me in studio, we have Catherine Custanzi. She is the Opera Queen. We've just discovered why and how ish. And, how-ish. and uh, you can see her at 6 15 on March 15th if you're in Toronto at the Cineplex at Young and Dundas. Go down and learn to love opera.
2: Yes, everybody can love opera.
0: Adam Garnet Jones is here. Great, great, great is the screenplay that he's nominated for a Canadian Screen Award for along with uh, Sarah Kolansky. Uh, we'll find out this weekend. My fingers are crossed for you. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm obviously hoping hoping for the win. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And if you win, do, will you write a speech? Will you have things prepared?
3: People always say, oh, I don't have anything to say, and then they pull out a list. You know, my default would be to just say – take it away, Sarah. (laughs) Sarah Sarah and I wrote it together. She's the lead performer. She produced the film, um, uh, and she's really been the the voice of the film in a lot of ways. But also, she's just much more comfortable um, in front of people and and speaking on behalf of the film than I am. but, uh, no, we've, we've talked about putting together a, a list of, of people to thank. I'd like to be on that list. So the movie Great, Great, we'll Great,
0: <laughs> Great, 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 you can see on iTunes uh, right now and on uh, VOD starting uh, on March 1st. So right now you can find it there. So if you want to see it in advance of the CSAs this weekend, check it out there. But we'll talk more about it uh, in just a little while. Julie Eng is here. So hi, Richard. you were pulled out of a hat. I, I love, that. I love there's, that. There's
1: a picture for proof. <laughs> <laughs> My so, mom has a whole other story though.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure there's differing uh, uh, uh d- Versions of what happened. So you were born uh, into a family of magicians. And, right. and it's kind of a you know that I you don't meet many people that are second generation magicians. Maybe you do more so. Tell me about growing up that way.
1: Well, I have to say, I mean, it was a charmed childhood. Yeah. My dad is was a character. He sadly passed away in two thousand and eight and I missed him desperately now to because this is this is what he you know really trained me for. Yeah. I was a part of the show right from the very beginning. When you were I, a little girl. I really were, yeah. I think uh, my sister and I were were three and four years old when we were literally <laughs> pulled out and produced you know there was silk handkerchiefs coming out galore a chandelier comes out two kids come <laughs> out <laughs> and, get and, then, and then and yeah. then my mother also appeared like it's just ridiculous and but i have always been a part of that and and that's my life i grew up you know schlepping stuff back and forth to various shows my father i grew up in victoria bc yeah so, it's a small town, and everyone knew my dad, and so I, by default, got to be known as Tony's daughter.
0: And <laughs> and I, you know,
1: that's just how I grew up, and he and constantly did all these shows. He was doing uh, bartending, so he was doing magic in the bar, so... Because he was our primary caretaker during the day, I would end up at the Army-Navy Club, you know, hanging out with the guys (laughs) at 4 o'clock, you know, waiting for my mom to come pick me up. (laughs) And I just got, you know, I had a really interesting childhood. You know, we were constantly playing. Kids would come over from school. They went to check out, you know. I thought I was popular. I thought, hey, they want to come over and play with me. They wanted to see my dad. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: And what was the first trick that you learned?
1: He taught me a trick for, for Halloween. And I very recently rediscovered the photo, and I must have been about four years old, and it's a very famous trick where you see a little ball, you put it in a little case, when you wave your hand over top, snap your fingers, the ball vanishes. And boy, everyone thought that was just great. And I did too. I was fooling myself, you know. So he taught me that at a very early age. And the irony is, I then when my father had a trick and joke shop in Victoria, I sold hundreds and hundreds of these tricks. (laughs) And now I, I use that as a mechanism for teaching the kids up at Hall and Bloorview Rehab Center where we do Magic is My Magic Hands is a, a recreational therapy program for kids who are in a long-term recovery. So.
0: Well, this is kind of pointing the direction towards the, the documentary. It's called The Science of Magic. Mm-hmm. And magic isn't just pulling rabbits out of hats and things, yeah. although that's awesome and we <laughs> love it. Uh, but it's also an investigative tool for scientists who are exploring human cognition, uh, neurobiology, and behavior. And this documentary really kind of gets around and shows not only how you can be tricked, but why and what the benefits and the interesting sort of elements of this are.
1: Yeah, the insights that the scientists are learning from watching how magicians utilize that knowledge and that skill inside of a learning on how we think, how we perceive. What's interesting is that, you know, magicians are, you know, as Donna Zuckerbrot has pointed out to me, she says they're kind of like intuitive psychologists. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's a really neat way of phrasing it, because as a performer, we intuitively move, we get to know people, we have to think about how does that interact with them, how do I get them to, to do this, how do I influence them or not influence yeah. them? And when do I choose to do that? These are all like thousands of little things that are going on in one's mind when you're performing a very simple effect. But scientists are now breaking it down using a scientific method to actually look at how does you know, how does eye tracking work? You know, in terms of what are they looking at? That's
0: really fascinating Wasn't in it? the movie. Yeah, Yeah. yeah.
1: And it's a neat way of you know thinking about how we, how we as magicians kind of use it intuitively, and how we can learn from it as a as a global you know mechanism to learn how, how we think, how we perceive, and and see everything. You know, there's one part in the movie where you know you think I'm driving a car. How could I possibly miss something as big as a freight train? And sure enough. the the subject crashes into a a freight train that's right in front of the screen. It's a driving simulation test with a very small, very tiny distraction. And at the same time, how can we miss something with the inattentional blindness? How can we miss something so obvious it's happening right underneath our noses and we still miss it? So it's that same idea of, you know, awareness and being blind to certain things. Well,
0: I've seen the show with David Ben. Yes, that, yes. Yeah. David's my colleague. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That you do. And the
1: magic consultant yeah. is. Yeah,
0: and, and the thing that I loved about that show— was that it's it it is relying on techniques that are in some cases hundreds of years old yes. and and it is it's science but it's it's a much different kind of uh, I'm I'm not explaining it well but it is it, he uses Misdirection and all the things that scientists are now discovering yes. to pull off things that will blow your mind. In
1: yes, and there's a there's a really interesting part in the film where we talk about this idea of offbeats, you know, and how we we work on rhythms. Mm-hmm. So we we count just like in music, you know, the metronome teaches us how to stay in tune with certain things. But magicians can take advantage of that and find ways to slip things in and out of the offbeat, and it's it's really fun to play with these ideas. Mm-hmm. And there's a great point in the in the film about that I don't if you recall the yeah, yeah, guy yeah. in Michigan,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's really fascinating stuff. I did magic, uh, as a kid, Jeez. paid my way through school doing what? magic, yeah, and uh, well, are you and gonna
2: do a trick for us?
0: I am not, uh, <laughs> but uh, he's gonna
2: sing some opera, yeah,
0: but I, I, but I do, uh, I, I take every chance. Uh, that I can to go see magicians. And what I've been really drawn to lately, uh, there's a guy called Steve Cohen in New York that I saw yes. who's unbelievable. He's a great
1: pal. He was part of our Luminato series yeah. a couple years back. And he was the top pick in the city for, for the show because it's small and intimate, yep. yet yet you're, yeah, it's about 60, 80 people. Yeah, he we, does it
0: at the Waldorf Astoria where well, I saw it. it's
1: now changed. I think he's at the Helmsley Palace now. Yeah. yeah. But he's so in a
0: hotel room. And it's, it's amazing. But
1: it's an elegant yeah. space, and, and and Steve's a great master. And
0: there's a dress code, which I love.
1: <laughs> I do too. You
0: have to wear a dress and gowns and, and you things. You
1: totally yeah. have to, get yeah. Yeah, it's it, it is fantastic. Yeah. But
0: I love, again, It it, it is. Uh, simple, You know there's a million things going on, but there's no, it, it's elegant. There's a, there's no big flourishes. It is just yeah, simple, like amazing look over things here. happening in front of you. Well, you
1: know, it's, that's a great example of how, you know, one of Steve's um, mentors, if you like, or so, someone he's really wanted to study with and studies intuitively with mm-hmm. is one of the guys mentioned in the film, Juan Tamariz, yeah. and he uses these techniques very effectively. And if you've seen his show, he's in complete control. Yeah. And it's a great way to objectively look at how you can influence without making people feel like they are influenced or making them feel like they have a free choice when they don't at all. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And the the movie uh, really does uh, provide a fascinating look uh, into that. Where can people see it?
1: They're gonna. We're gonna have the show on March 18th on CBC, The Nature of Things, yep. at 8 p.m.
0: And it's called The Science of Magic. Uh, have a look at it because it's really, really, really fascinating stuff. Yeah. It, yeah, and there's some really cool magic in it too.
1: Yeah, David designed a lot of magic for the show, and um, and trained me how to do a lot of it and also some of it I, I had done as a kid as well so it was really interesting to be able to play around with yeah. doing this. It's the first time I've done this kind of a hosting position and I was so excited with the opportunity and getting to see the amount, ima- there's a lot of magic in this yeah. film by a lot of other performers as well and it's, It's. I, I was really honored to be a part of it.
0: Uh, so check it out on March 18th on The Nature of Things on CBC. Uh, Julie Yang will talk to you again on the other side of the commercial uh, when we come back we'll talk to Adam Garnet Jones will talk about a lot there's a lot of stuff to talk about but I want to talk about Great 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 and being nominated for a Canadian Screen Award. Stay with us. Welcome back everybody. I'm Richard Krause. We've been talking with Julie Yang about magic. We've been talking with Catherine Custancy about uh, opera. Now we're going to talk to um, Adam Garnet Jones uh, about his film Great Great Great. But first, there's a connection that we just made during the commercial (laughs) break that you grew up in Victoria and used to go to Julie's father's Magic trick joke. and joke shop <laughs> and, and magic shop.
3: I did. I remember going to Tony's trick and joke shop and being fascinated by all of the different things that you could get there. And My I dad was a
1: bit of the main attraction for, for <laughs> after school. <laughs> well, would... yeah,
3: and I, I just remember him being really kind. And, and it was at a time when I was uh, curious about art and curious about performing and all kinds of different things and thinking like, oh, maybe magic is going to be the thing that I'm really good at and that captivates me. And uh, – I mean, I, I loved it, but I had absolutely no talent, and right. so yeah, <laughs> those those trips to Tonys dried up. But um, uh, I I had no idea until you mentioned the the shops. So that was, is such a nice small world, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Across the other side of the country, well, your film, great,
0: great, great, uh, is nominated for a Canadian Screen Award along with Sarah Kolansky
3: for Kolaski uh, for original screenplay. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, the feels a little bit like the nomination kind of came out of the blue. Um, we made the the film, just the, the two of us, with the money we had in our back pockets yeah. and uh, the friends that we had a- around as performers. And so um, to have it acknowledged in, in that way came as uh, a, a pretty big surprise to us, actually. Yeah,
0: so it came out in October, and uh, and now it's available on iTunes and on VOD, so you can check it out there and have a look at it. It's a really cool film that is uh, that has a great deal of humanity to it. Well, thank you. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, what does it mean to you to be nominated? Well, does it mean more work? Does it mean you got to rent a tuxedo? And what 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 goes on <laughs> when you get nominated for something like this?
3: I mean, when you work in any kind of entertainment or probably any kind of entrepreneurial field, mm-hmm. you never you never know what something is going to mean. I mean, it's it's a really wonderful acknowledgement. Um, it may open doors, and it it may not. I mean, right. you can go into the right bar on the right night, meet the right person, and suddenly, you know, a, a connection is sparked, and it can open, right. you know, a hundred doors. Uh, you could go oh, and, to Tony's and, joke shop, exactly, and become a magician, or you yes. can, or you can win an award, and it could lead to something, or it could could lead to nothing. So, I mean, I think that we're both approaching it as a really wonderful acknowledgement and a, and a great time to, to go out and celebrate with other people uh, in our community of, of filmmakers. But what happens after? Who knows? Drink all the free champagne that you can. That's my <laughs> advice to you. Exactly.
0: <laughs> now there's there's uh, some interesting stuff. You mentioned your Indigenous heritage mm-hmm. uh, earlier. You are a direct descendant of Chief Michael Callahu. Michelle Callahu. Michelle Callahue. Yes. Now tell me about him because uh, signatory on Treaty Six. That's right. What's going on here. So tell me about this.
3: Well, it's um, uh, the the Michelle First Nation is an interesting uh, community because it doesn't actually uh, exist physically anymore. It's the only um, band that was forcibly enfranchised uh, in right. Canada. So um, uh, it's a, a community that's made up of um, Cree and uh, Métis people who are descended from uh, Mohawks from Ganawage. It's kind of like a, a confusing lineage but um, in 1959 the the band was uh, forcibly enfranchised and the um, the decision was uh, declared unconstitutional the following year uh, but it was not uh, reversed right. so as a result uh, that's an odd the, the there is no reserve the community right. doesn't exist and a ton of people lost uh, their their status and, and rights and only a handful got them back in, in the 80s so um, it's uh, a, a complicated and interesting and strange history that's very unique to that that one community.
0: Yeah, and that's
3: and that's all West Coast, is it? Are you from Victoria? You... Oh, sorry. And the and the the um uh, uh the the area where the Michelle First Nation was is just outside of uh, Saint Albert. Oh, so right. Cl- close to Edmonton. Yeah, yeah. And that's where all my extended family is still is Edmonton. Right. Yeah. And what brought you west or east? What brought you east? <laughs> movies Please, i was yeah. uh, i was actually in in vancouver at the time and i was watching the cbc one night and i realized that almost all of the canadian content being produced and actually getting seen mm-hmm. in this country was being produced in toronto and within 10 seconds <laughs> I just decided. Oh, I guess I'm moving there yeah. as soon as I can. So that's what I did. Picked up my stuff, moved to Toronto, went to Ryerson, and uh, and started making films. And and you are not only a screenwriter but a director. You you are creating
0: your own projects. Yes, and not waiting actually, around for work to to come filtering
3: down, right? And I think that that's often the story with people who are trying to tell stories that don't fit into the mainstream. Right. Is you know. I often go and I and I meet with producers, I meet with production companies, and often they've, they've seen my work and they like it and they respond to it. And I don't necessarily get the job that they're looking at me right. for because the work that I'm making doesn't it, – it, it relates specifically to uh, – Mostly Indigenous people and in Indigenous Canadians. It's funny because Great, Great, Great is actually not an Indigenous film yeah. at all. Uh, but my previous work is is very queer. It's very Indigenous, including uh, my first film Firesong, um, which uh, I just adapted as a young adult novel that's getting released next week. Congratulations, uh, Anic Press. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank so, you. and and that will be available as physical books in bookstores, or is it Kindle is it everything? Uh, it's it's everything right, right now. It's physical books, and you can get it at Chapters and all respectable bookstores. Yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> I always like to say all fine and not so fine bookstores everywhere. Exactly. Yeah.
3: know it's 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 um yeah it's it's getting a, a fairly wide release, but there's also an audiobook coming out okay. and uh, a, a digital book. Well, congratulations,
0: yeah. Thank and you. and tell me about the process of. Uh, adapting something that you were obviously close to that, that maybe you felt like, well, I've done that, now I'm moving on to other things, and now it's a book. Tell me why and and about the process of, of doing it.
3: Well, I did have to ask myself if, if I wanted to, to go back into that story because it's a really um, it it deals with um, isolation and suicide and uh, coming out to a certain extent and um, it's dark it's it's really dark material and so I really questioned for myself whether I wanted to go back into it but I ultimately decided that um, I did want to because with the the, the change of of medium from film where you're you're watching characters do things you're listening to them speak Um, and and translating that into a novel, which is much more interior, where you're really looking at characters' um, psychology, in addition to to hearing them speak and and, and seeing them do things, Um, it would allow me to expand the world of of the film and really make the experience of that character felt in, uh, in a different way than I was able to in the film. And that was a really exciting opportunity for me and I felt like the pairing of uh, the book and the film and the audio book and we just have uh, uh, an um, uh, Anishinaabemowin translation of the film okay. being released right now as well. So I was excited about the opportunity to package all of that uh, as um, educational materials for yeah. people who are interested in learning indigenous language uh, and also just people who are interested in learning more about um, the communities. And uh, the book comes out next week, right? That's true. So, yeah, so you can actually, don't run out this weekend. Well, I have friends who uh, have purchased the book at Chapters in Ottawa and in downtown Toronto, even uh, as early as a couple of weeks ago. So I don't really know how things work in the world of publishing, but the book is out there in the world and people are buying it.
0: Then run out this weekend and and look (laughs) for it. It's interesting because it is kind of the opposite way around. Frequently, there are uh, books that get turned into film, but it's, Rarer, I think, or a little bit uh, uh, less common, to have a,
3: a film turned into a book by the same author, by the same writer. It, it's true, and I, I, some in some ways, I don't really know how how it happened, uh, but I'm <laughs> very it. grateful yeah. to have had had the opportunity. Uh, do
0: you think there is a, a newly formed? Uh, Indigenous Film Council now in Canada with Jesse Wente uh, at the at the head. Um, do you see changes
3: coming in the next number of years? Absolutely. Um, the um, Indigenous Screen Office mm-hmm. is the result of um, years of work on from from a, a group of Indigenous filmmakers um, that I am included in, where we, we've been we've been lobbying the the government and bodies like the CMF and uh, Telefilm to. Um, set aside funding and, right. and and for Indigenous projects to make sure that there are um, uh, Indigenous stories are being told on screen in in this country because the the same glass ceiling that people talk about um, when they talk about um, women telling their stories when they talk about people from all kinds of different mm-hmm. cultures telling their stories is also there for uh, Indigenous people. You know when you have a filmmaker who comes in. They've got a great script. They've got a great uh, idea. They've made um, uh, short films that have gone to Berlin and Sundance and and a great track record. And then someone looks at that script and says, oh, wow, we'd love to make this movie. It'll probably cost about $5 million. And we can't fund this movie as great as it is because um, there's no part for a star because all the characters are indigenous. So sorry, you don't get to tell your story. Yeah,
0: see, this is what people kind of forget about – Uh, representation and inclusion. The idea that you can say, okay, well, there's no Indigenous people that are, you know, big enough stars to carry a movie like this. Well, it's because they've never been cast in roles that allow them the opportunity to become, I mean, there's Adam Beach. Absolutely. People love him and Graham Greene, and there's a number of actors out there, but uh, that's why representation and inclusion is so important to kickstart these careers.
3: For sure. And we're in a time where the star system is kind of dead. Thank God. People people (laughs) very rarely go to see a movie just because a particular actor is in it. So to, to to look at a filmmaker and say, you know, there's no part for a star and then turn around and give another Canadian film 5 million dollars mm-hmm. because somebody on, you know, a, a, who plays a side character on an American sitcom right. is the lead mm. thinking that somehow that's going to translate into box office sales is it's backwards insane.
2: thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. We have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. Julie Yang, the, the science of magic, uh, you can see that on CBC coming up. Uh, Catherine, thanks so much. You can see Catherine um, Custanzi at uh, March 15th, 615, Young and Dundas. You'll love opera after that. I might and,
2: wear a crown. And
0: and we're going to cross our fingers for Adam Garnet jones uh, this weekend and see if he wins the best thank original you. screenplay at the Canadian Screen Awards. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Robert on the board, and we'll talk to you all next week.